Hello. 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 I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, let's try this a little bit. And if this doesn't work on this go, then I'll have to come over to your place. Okay. All right. Um, so I'm afraid we might have to start from the beginning. Hello, everyone. I am Marcibel, and this is the Marcibel Podcast. Hello everyone, welcome back to the More Civil Podcast, a podcast about culture, cultural nomads designed for blacks and Asians, and those who love them. I'm your host, Mosibo, Nigerian-born, US-educated, Korean-speaking, struggling intellectual. Today I have a very, very special guest with me. I met him at a local Toastmasters meeting, and his name is William Bill James. We call him Bill at meeting, and he describes himself as a lifelong resident of a homeless city. He was born in 19. 19- 45. He retired from the Federal Aviation Administration in the 7, where he worked as a supply service analyst for 38 years. He attended the University of Oklahoma before serving in the U.S. Army from 1968 to 1970. Once he was discharged, he joined the Army Reserve until he retired in 1998 at the rank of a Chief Warrant Officer. He's an active member of Toastmasters International and belongs to the Uptown Toastmasters Club 27 of Oklahoma City, where I am also a member. Um, so join me in welcoming Bill James to the podcast. Hello, Bill. Hi, Mo. Thank you for the invitation. I am so excited about doing this. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for the, for the lovely introduction. Thank you. Thank you. And um, I think we, just, we can just go right into it. Well, one of the reasons I brought you on the podcast, which I told you already about, was how several weeks ago, after the Toastmasters meeting, uh, and then we're doing like the normal end of the meeting pleasantry. And then you said, hey, Mo, come. I want to show you something on my phone. I'm like, what's that? And then you go ahead and showed me. You went ahead and showed me your um, ancestry results of your DNA analysis. And right there in the little corner was you being 7% Nigerian. And I'm like, whoa, he's one of us. And that, you know, really opened up another wave of conversation. Because I think before then, we just said hi in the club and we didn't really have a love conversation. And that made me really connect more with you. And then along that line, you started telling me about the Nigerian movies you were watching on Netflix. I was like, wow, he's really, really into Nigerian movies, which I really love, by the way. And I really wanted to encourage that. And so that's one of the reasons why I brought you on the path. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I was really excited because um, how that all started was I had a, um, sorry, my dad's mom yeah. uh, died way before I was born. Uh, mm-hmm. She died in 1937, and of course I was born in 1945. Yeah. And so I never really got to meet her, and I was always a curious about who she was and, and what, she, what she looked like and all these things mm-hmm. that uh, kind of came about later in my life. It, you know, as yeah. a kid, I really didn't know that. I was always very close to my mom's mother, and so um, I thought, I, you know, I need to know my dad's mom as well. Yeah. So um, as a result, I spent some time uh, trying to research all I could to find out about her. Hmm. And uh, that's when I kind of stumbled on Ancestry. And... Uh, 
I really hit stone walls uh, with her because uh, the name that she was actually called and her actually given name was not the same. And I so see. even on her tombstone, her name is Ida. I know where she's buried. And uh, if you go to the census, uh, you can't really uh, make the connection because her actual name is Ali Da. It's A-L-I-D-A. Ah, so Ali Da and then she goes by Ida. And went by Ida, and that's oh. and actually on her tombstone is Ida. So anyway, I see. Uh, with the help of a friend in my computer club, they were able to break that, uh, find the connection. So all of a sudden, all this information just flowed out about my grandmother. Uh, and and so there was an interesting, another interesting story. That aside from that is my dad. Their family name was Olier, H O L I E R. That's a French name, right? It's a French name, yeah. uh, but it was in Oklahoma. It was known as Haudier. Yeah, you know, I went to a Catholic grade school. My grandmother was Catholic, and so was um, my dad. But he did, he wasn't a practicing Catholic. But he insisted that my brother and I go to this Catholic school. Yeah. So anyway, um, as a result of that, there was a family that was in that in our parish that, that had the last name of Haudier, mm-hmm. and so my father recognized that name. And so I recall them sitting uh, together. This um, one of the kids' dads, because we played with the children, and they were trying to make a connection between themselves that they never were able to make that connection. And so it was just uh, only the last seven years that I was able to put all the pieces together that my dad and this guy were actually cousins. Oh, my goodness. And you had to come all the way to Oklahoma to find out. Yeah. So that was wow. that was kind of interesting. So, but to uh, our skip forward a little bit is that um, in all this research, of course, um, we're using Ancestry, and Ancestry has this DNA component where you can submit your DNA, and then they can give you a result of what your ethnicity happens to be. And so yeah. that's what I was showing you um, exactly what I was um, about. And um, surprisingly, uh, you know, it was it was quite a bit different from what I thought, but. Uh, as we said, I was 17% Ghana, yes. uh, Togo. I'm yes. 15% Ivory Coast, Ghana. And Ghana, uh-huh. uh, 12% Mali, 11% yes. European, and uh, 7% Nigerian. And then, of course, there's some other... Um, French bricks of it. Yeah, it's a lower, uh, they say lower, what they call lower confidence regions. But as an African-American, you know, that's, yes. that's as best as we can get because, um, you know, when you identify you identify as black mm-hmm. but um, a lot of people say well you know you're African American mm-hmm. but we cannot exactly pinpoint a definitely country which we belong to I see. as you see uh, in that list that's quite a bit of different uh, areas and regions that's you can a- condense that safely to West Africa though because those yeah. countries you mentioned are in West Africa right so maybe I can say I'm from West Africa but that's you a can lot say that. It's too large, though. <laughs> yeah, but that's so general yeah. where, you know, our, uh, our Caucasian brethren can say, okay, I'm German and I'm from the village of so-and-so, or I'm Scottish yeah. and I'm from this. We cannot do that. We have to take, a big, uh, take the generalization that we know that we're from the continent of Africa and here are what we're supposedly mixed with. So that, that really doesn't actually make you, um, give you a warm feeling. And my, at least for me, because uh, to get right down to it is that yeah. I'm really uh, I'm I'm a black person, mm-hmm. but I am a I happen to be I was born and raised in America mm-hmm. in the state of Oklahoma. That is narrative. my <laughs> that is my narrative. So uh, that's as close as I can get to actually what who I belong to and who I am. 
I cannot say that I I'm, I can't say with any certainty that I am from uh, Cameroon or Congo. I don't even know what village I would belong to mm. or anything like that. So in actuality, the, the the truth of the matter is that I'm really more American than I am African. That's a fact meant to me. As uh, someone I, I was telling you earlier, we were talking about this, is that um, the uh, 2020 census that the government is planning on doing, they're, yes. they're kind of proposing that they're going to ask black people about their exact origins. Good luck with that. Yeah, I'll get luck with that because as this lady, as I was mentioning earlier, she says uh, uh, there's a write-in area on that form, so that will allow her to be more specific about her black identity. And what she says, mm -hmm. she, she says, I'm African, I identify as black, mm -hmm. but I don't see myself as an African-American. African-American, yeah. Because I was born in Ethiopia. I now live in New York. We just, we can't just be black as African-Americans. We are black from Africa. We are black yeah. from the Caribbean. We are black from everywhere. So in that context, I can say I am black from uh, Africa, but I'm also black from Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. That that's my that's my roots and that's my origin. And I think you know a lot of people would say when they think of that is that they're talking about the continent. They're not talking about a Pacific country or a Pacific tribe because that, that data is not is not known. So um, you you mentioned something earlier that I want to pivot off of based on an earlier conversation I had with um, an African on the show about our relationship with Africa. Um, now to you. I wonder, okay, is this a fact statement to make that most African Americans are seeking for that connection to the African part of them? And maybe for you, one of the reasons why you had to do that, although you did share a story about your, you know, your paternal grandmother and why you had to, but would you say this could be one way for African Americans to feel connected to that African part of them by doing this, you know, ancestry profile to find out at least to a degree what part of Africa they're from? I understand what you're saying. There's really no cultural link to a Pacific region or country because, you know, you yourself, you're Nigerian, so you know what village you're from, you know what mm -hmm. the customs are of that village, you yeah. know, uh, I'm pretty sure that each region in, within Nigeria, they have a different... Um, um, distinct characteristics. Yeah. Distinct character. And oh, yeah. um, so we really can't... We have a distinct character. I have a distinct character as being an Oklahoman yeah. as opposed to being from New York. But myself, I can't, you know, get to that degree. When a African-American relates to an African, that's where the disconnect comes because there's a, there's, a, there's a cultural difference, and it's not necessarily based on the Pacific uh, characteristics. It's more has to do more with an educational uh, level, in my mind. Can you, because can you expand on that? What you mean by educational? Because Africans, for the most part, are highly educated, more so than the average African-American. Mm. I mean, we, of course, we have our educated uh, individuals that have gone and got advanced degrees. Yeah. But because of the immigration laws that we have, is that the only Africans that African Americans see are those that are not within their social circles. So, as for the average African American to see or socialize with an African is very rare because mm. they do not run in the same circles. And there's a big cultural gap, actually, too, because um, the average in this context is that African-Americans are more like their white counterparts as far as their likes and dislikes. 
yeah. than their African counterparts. And so that in itself is, doesn't actually make any progress as to having any um, conversation or relationship with the African counterpart. And what I was saying what, at some point is that it would be really nice if we all had a, a chance to sit down together and just talk about ourselves. And why this podcast is for. This is and one maybe, of the reasons I started the podcast. Yeah, and then maybe we can then uh, uh, find some common ground. But it's like you and I, is that yeah. uh, basically I would not have met you if you wouldn't have been a member of Toastmasters That's because true. there's no way that I would have made any contact with you whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I go back to my, I, I think I told you earlier, I had a roommate at the University of Oklahoma when I was my second semester. Yeah. And... Uh, he was an older person. He was a grad student. But thinking back uh, with our, our conversation, I could not relate to him at all. Uh, we didn't actually bond as friends. Why do you think it was that well, way? There was, lot, there was a lot of things that w- was probably played in that. Is that I, I don't want to think age was a difference, but that yeah. could have been. Because he was a grad student and I was a freshman. So there was a, a, a big age difference in that regard. But I remember that we had nothing in common to talk about. I, I'm thinking about that. I don't even think that uh, if I happen to have my roommate as being a German or a French foreign student, mm-hmm. I probably would have had more. I'd love to talk about more. Yeah, with him than I did with uh, with this gentleman because I see. he just did not connect. And I... I, mm-hmm. I was hard to really uh, put a, a point on why that happened, but um, the more I think about it, because we didn't even, you know, if we never actually went any place together that I remember. Maybe because they wrapped up in a study, so that that probably had a lot to do with it. I guess what I'm getting at is that most African Americans do not come in contact with Africans based on their social level because. Um, they, they don't run, we, we don't we do not run in the same circles because most of most are professionals and so they're they're going to be in the professional sector so it's possible that um, an American an African American doctor could yeah. possibly run into contact with an African doctor here you don't see an African plumber mm-hmm. that happens to come from um, Nigeria or the Congo or an electrician because they don't exist. The immigration laws just don't allow that kind of immigration because they want mm-hmm. to have them highly skilled, highly skilled professional individuals, and they're the ones that are allotted visa. But I would guarantee that if a plumber applied for a visa to come to the United mm-hmm. States. You would probably be denied. Yeah. So well, he um, might probably be denied for saying he's a plumber, and if he doesn't have enough money, because there's so many things they look at. Yeah, but I see what you mean. Um, along that line, there's one misconception. Uh, I want to say like a stereotype that is, and this is not, this is a general statement. It doesn't apply to all Africans, and I can't speak for all Africans. But here's a stereotype I'm throwing out there, and I want you to, you know, talk more on that. Is on average, Africans perceive African Americans as those that don't want to take advantage of the dream America. So, like you said, Africans that come here are highly educated. You know, they strive hard to gain degrees, usually in the healthcare sector. They sometimes, still a general statement, might look at African Americans as people know we work hard. Okay, what do you have and to I that statement. And I, I, I kind of understand what you're saying, but it all goes back to our our, our um, origins. 
mm-hmm. is that um, when I was growing up, I was fortunate to be in a, a middle-class situation. Mm-hmm. So I was afforded to have, or at least given, a better education. My parents kind of insisted that on that. And my parents had could afford to, to allow me to do certain things. Yeah. And I was an exception because most African Americans are far below the poverty line. This was back in the 50s. And, yeah. of course, we still had segregation. Jim Crow laws and all that. The Jim Crow laws, all of that. Mm-hmm. And some of us were able to escape from that. Mm-hmm. But everyone is not so fortunate. And I think mm-hmm. it's really difficult for people to understand why there's a segment of our population that uh, is unable to achieve, mainly because they don't know how. Mm-hmm. They've never been given the skills to do so. They, they, have, uh, they don't have the ambition because they realize that it doesn't really, it doesn't matter what kind of skill that you have that you can't get beyond a certain status because of your race. And that is uh, unfortunate because that's not always the case. But there are a lot, but there's a majority of people that have a real problem getting past that, is that in their mind, they look at themselves as being black, and as a black person, they cannot succeed. And Would you I, say there's still like a trickle-down effect of slavery from many years ago? Exactly. Mm. And it could be, it really could be overcome. There has been programs that have been afforded to a lot of people, and mm-hmm. in some of those programs they've allowed to have been excelled. It's like um, the program of what was called Affirmative Action. It's allowed, allowed a, a number of individuals to break out because they were given opportunities placed before their white counterparts so they were allowed to excel. But there is a reaction to that kind of treatment. Most of my uh, acquaintances and most of my uh, associations was basically Caucasian. And so as a result, my my thought processes tended to uh, lean in that direction. But as I've grown older, I look back and I say, you know, there's there's something that was askew there, is that possibly that I was a victim of discrimination without me even knowing it, because I wasn't able to recognize it. Uh, but that's something that I don't know if we will ever overcome. But back to back to the uh, the, the uh, Black American today, yeah. we still have vast pockets of people that live in poverty and most of those are black Americans and that is because that they have not been given sufficient opportunities to better themselves and as a result of that they have become very complacent so they have found a way to survive by playing the system so if if your parents were on Food stamps, you know that worked for you. Welfare, that worked for you. So why should you try to do anything better? Because you can't, you're not given an opportunity to to go beyond that. So if I can be, if my mom was a welfare mom, I can be a welfare mom, I can survive. And, And that has become so instilled that it's really difficult for an individual to go into that community to try to explain ways of how they can better themselves. Because, first of all, they won't believe you. Mm. 
there, there's no credibility to make that actually um, a, a doable situation. There's wonderful examples of how groups of individuals can excel. Uh, I'm old enough to remember when uh, the end of the Vietnam War, I was stationed at Fort Chaffee. I'm not stationed, but I, I served a summer camp at Fort Chaffee. And when all the refugees came from Vietnam, they settled at Fort Chaffee. They were given, they were, that's where they were uh, given a place to live. And the Asian population, mostly Vietnamese, have the past 30, 40 years no longer have any baggage of being on welfare or anything. They have excelled. And, and oh, how that... to do that. Okay, go ahead. Because they were able to uh, find uh, pockets where they, could, they had goods and services that they could sell. They, mm. uh, um, they, they also had... Um, they didn't have the baggage of not being able to accomplish something. They brought all those good practices with them. So they insisted that their children uh, do certain things, and as a result, they're, uh, they have just, you know, flourished. So you won't find, that's the reason why the Asian population has been able to, to succeed, mm. because you, you, you won't find an Asian ghetto, at least I'm not aware of one, at least in Oklahoma. They might have some, but not as, um, as highly defined as we have. But I was looking, right, I'm just thinking about here in Oklahoma City. Oh. <laughs> I, well, there's a, the Asian district is over there on Classen. Yeah. Between 23rd and 36th. That's, yeah. uh, that's the Asian district. Most mm -hmm. of the people settled there have, you know, uh, got into businesses and done a lot of things. And so um, that's not necessarily an area with, which you would consider depressed. Mm -hmm. Where if you go on the northeast side of town we've lived here for generations and there has not there's very few entrepreneur success stories to come out of that very few entrepreneur success stories that yeah. have been um, generated over generations and it, it's yeah. just hard to really put a finger on why our race not assume to say our race that African Americans in this particular state and city have not been successful. I, I, I don't that line. What, what would you say, Africans as a whole? How can we help? Africans as a whole, I think. Yeah. What probably need to go into the community, identify themselves, and try to get to know the people um, at hmm. their level. Hmm. Uh, try to determine um, what. The problems are, and then perhaps you know, work your way from there. But so basically, something that comes from an, a culturally informed. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay. Um, now, things that do kids that uh, that seem to be influenced by is that sports is big in the black community, and I think that's mainly because that. That is a success story that, okay, if I'm a good football player or a good basketball player, soccer player, whatever, I can make lots of money. Yeah, like to get away from poverty. Yes. And it's a quick way to get out of poverty, and you don't have to have a whole lot of educational skills to do it. So as a result, um, kids will practice those skills, um, and they get recognized. Then they say, oh, 
I'm on the fast track to be successful as an athlete. You very find, very seldom find anyone being on the fast track to be a doctor, a nurse, or a CEO, because yeah. those kinds of things they do not see as something a black person is able to achieve. So maybe even highlighting more people like me in different sectors, be doctors, be plumbers, be um, pharmacists, and things like that, can also help changing the story a little bit. Would you say that's a, a correct statement? Well, it possibly would work, but the thing about it is that as there are um, individuals within the community that have those skills, but I don't know if they are actually visible enough to get a child fired up. So that might be the problem is that we don't have the visibility. They don't understand that, oh, here's 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 something that you can do that you can make a difference. They, They need to be inspired at a very young age where they're now on a path where they can continue to um, progress and flourish because along the way they're going to be distracted with other things. Um, I know myself is that my, I love um, computers and anything that has to do with uh, IT. That's, that's my gig. I enjoy that. I love that. Mm-hmm. And, but that's something I acquired later. I mean, I was... Um, I was in my 40s before I, that came to being. I was never exposed to that as a child because that those kinds of skills weren't uh, existing. But uh, but I um, but as a as a person, you know, if you can go into the school or uh, the community, first of all, you have to relate. You have to be able yeah, to to be, be uh, at their level and understand. Uh, then that's possibly that you can then influence uh, others to do um, to better themselves. Um, along that line, just to kind of round off this um, part of the conversation, there's something that I know um, that I actually learned from my Jewish friend. So they have this almost like a study abroad where they invite high schoolers from Israel to come to the U.S. and then those from the U.S. that are of all Jewish heritage, they go to Israel so would you say, like, along the lines of ways to kind of improve communication and connection between Africans and African-Americans, if you had, like, an exchange study abroad program, we have to start it very early. We have high schoolers from here traveling to some parts of Africa, and they will have Africans from coming from Africa and doing some exchange programming. So, like, a culture, do you think that can also yeah. help exposure and all of that? I think it would. I mean, I... I um, because... Um, I don't believe that most African-Americans have a good understanding of what Africa is all about. They see pictures, maybe. Uh, they definitely do not have any Af- any interaction with Africans. But, but even the able- pictures they see, I, I want to assume that it's the, because it's probably the ones you see on TV about dying kids needing like a dollar a day. Well, um Possibly, yeah, you're right. I think that is one of that you see the the, uh, the uh, see Africa as being um, poverty stricken. They yeah. have that, they have that view, or they have the exotic view where they see the tribal, but they don't see the the cities and um, that aspect of Africa. Mm-hmm. And another thing that's really dominant um, is is that South Africa probably. Has more of a urban 
appearance. That everybody thinks, you know, South Africa is that's the only con- that's the only city. I mean, only country that is actually modern and and uh, progressive. Where everything they have a the, better they have a better PR there than right. than we than all the other, other countries. Yeah, for all the other countries you see is dirt roads and and people living in. Um, um, that's, that's not appealing. You can, you couldn't get a high school student to uh, to buy into that. Suppose even though they're not living in any much um, any better circumstances than the people are in Africa, they don't want to be subjected to um, that kind of uh, a lifestyle because it's said, well, so they don't have running water, they don't have this, yeah. they don't have that. That's not necessarily true. You wouldn't you wouldn't blame them though because that's all they see. Right. Um. So kind of like you know. I'm going off a little bit of a tangent here. One of the points that I kind of um, raised with the previous speaker was how, even on a higher level, like having more African Americans invest more in Africa and just buy into that idea. Another way to foster that relationship is having African Americans visit Africa, or even the ones that are very entrepreneurial and they have the wings to invest in businesses back home. Would you say that's also one way to build a better connection between Africans and Africans. Um, yeah, but, you know, where is that done? I mean, there's no group that's doing that. Is there? On a lesser degree, but this was purposefully done, though, and this was Koreans way back after the Korean War, but the government sent, like, the nurses and the mine workers West Germany. That happened to what we see as South Korea being a very developed country now. Um, or even looking at the Jewish community, you know, um, those that are here and those that are in Israel, I want to say to a degree that there's a lot of interaction between those two entities that must have fostered um, economic growth in Bent. And this is my opinion from a very, from an outsider view, because I have never been to Israel. I've communicated with just a handful of Jewish people. And so this opinion is just something I will say. As a whole, I've condensed from my interaction with, you know, the few Jewish people I've... It's just a thought. Well... You know, it's interesting that you bring that up because those two countries have um, reinvented themselves after a, a devastating war or displacement, and in a short within my lifetime, because most of that occurred after I was born. Mm-hmm. And you see, um, because I was born right after World War II. Of course, the Korean War uh, occurred after that. Mm-hmm. But the um, the uh, Jewish victims of the Holocaust mm-hmm. then were displaced, moved to Israel, and in that short period of time, they have built a flourishing economy and lifestyle. Mm-hmm. You take you take, look at this in perspective: that blacks were freed in 1856, mm-hmm. and they were given their freedom. Yeah. Since 1856 to today. We still have this huge disparity between the African American community and the white community. Rather than everything blending and amalgamating to be where everyone can be successful, we have this big divide. Yeah. And you have to think. You have to think. Why is that? How can one situation that was completely destroyed yeah. in a short period of time become? Formidable and successful. So I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know the answer to that either. I mean, it's just 
It's kind of mind-boggling because if you think about it, that we had slavery abolished in 1856. Everybody was supposed mm-hmm. to be given freedom. Everybody yeah. was be given equal opportunity and absolutely nothing came of it and that was a small that that was a very small population that wasn't a whole lot of people and then you look at a situation where the jews were displaced were had to move to another country and yet in that in that short period of time they have been successful uh same with uh korea that um the country was divided, and that one country was... Uh, Across the, the parallel, north and south, yeah, in 1960. Well, and yeah. they have become successful. You look mm-hmm. at um, uh, the Vietnamese who have come over after a devastating war, yeah. and that um, they have moved into communities, and they have become successful. Yeah. So there is something that's actually amiss here that somehow uh, someone has become a victim. I mean, that's all I can say. I mean, I can't think of any other word to use. I know that's not a popular word to use, but that's how I, yeah. I yeah. kind of believe that. Because of the length of this episode, I have decided to cut it into two portions. And the next one, we are going to conclude on our talk on improving the relationships between Africans and African-Americans from Bill James' perspective, who is an African-American. And there's also going to be a surprise at the end that you don't want to miss. So make sure you go on the website and listen to the concluding episode. And I look forward to hearing back from as many of you as possible. Thank you for listening. Then This has been the Marcible Podcast. I remain your host, Marcible.